life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of God. that we must fight uh, to in our workplace, battles that we must fight in our home, battles that we fight within. And, and by battles, I don't mean, of course, necessarily outward battles, also inward battles. But, but your life and mine, isn't it true uh, that we have myriads of campaigns? And, and there are these great campaigns, noble campaigns, perhaps. But in such a world where everyone's coming after you, uh, to engage their pet campaign or what they believe is the great campaign of our day, it gets difficult, doesn't it, to discern, to navigate. What, what, where is the campaign that, that I'm to pour myself into? Um, how am I to spend my life? And what battles do I fight and what battles do I say that's not my battle to fight? We'll enter in this passage where... The passage you just heard read, it actually begins in a couple of verses earlier. Listen carefully to what it says. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. These words are significant. You could have just assumed translated it fight the good fight it's it's a verb form applied to a noun form wage the good war fight the good fight actually would be a better translation it's this word to to engage in a battle or to engage in a kind of campaign but it certainly invokes the image of a soldier or someone who is passionate and who is fully engaged in some campaign of great consequence. This word then carries from it the word that is also the verb form, which is to do the campaign. But what's interesting here is that Paul singles out a campaign of all campaigns. You notice the singular, the good fight. Very, very important that that Paul is now recognizing that, that in the context of the Christian life, there are many campaigns, good and noble though they may be, but there is a great, a good campaign 
that is the campaign of all campaigns, that, that actually defines the very meaning of our life. And, and it's this very sense of compass that I sense we today and modern people have lost. The secularization of our world has, has, has put a dividing wall between this transcendent way of viewing life, of getting on the balcony, as we like to talk about, of, of understanding campaigns in light of maybe an ultimate campaign. That is the object of this sermon. What is that campaign? What is that battle? What is that fight that is the transcendent fight of all fights, which therefore will absolutely transform every other fight, campaign, or battle that we wage? What is that campaign that will transform your prayers? What is that campaign that, that could be said when we pray, in your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen? What then in his name would be the campaign that God in Christ has revealed that relates to every prayer that you pray? We often enter prayer, and I'm going to be speaking of this in two weeks, as we inaugurate our big year, but we often think of as, as prayers, as God a kind of, of tidy housekeeper. We pray for those to have traveling mercies. We pray for our protection of our children and our loved ones. We pray for heal, heal, being healed in sickness. And all, of course, are legitimate and understandable and compassionate prayers. But more than this, we pray for our governments. We pray for, for the our social context for our city. We pray for the politics. We pray for all sorts of campaigns. They're great campaigns, political campaigns, economic campaigns. Is there a campaign that not only transcends all those campaigns, but then would inform how we campaign in those campaigns? Is there a campaign, a war, a battle that that would change the way we pray when we pray in your name. Amen. Well, notice how the answer then comes. After introducing this charge, I charge you, Timothy, he then brings us the passage that we have in chapter 2. And what would you say is that campaign? Notice how it began. First of all, again, the emphasis. First. The priority, the priority of all things, you could say in this translation. First of all, I urge you to pray. He says it in many ways, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. And this is going to introduce what it is that is the great campaign that should be the ultimate object of every pray we pray. Here it is. For be made for who then? All people. And what's very interesting about this is the all people. Because immediately we're just thinking, okay, that's right, you know, that, that we should be praying for all people. There is no distinction. All people need God. But what's particularly interesting here is then how he will want to clarify what and who he means by all people. Did you notice that? The all then gets described not numerically, but rather categorically. 
And he specifically mentions those who have places of authority for kings and all who are in high positions. Think about the people in high positions. What do they represent, do you think, in this discussion about campaigns of all campaigns? They all represent a campaign. They all represent something that is to invoke your passion. Kings, of course, puts us into the civil, political realm. And there are great campaigns in those realms, are there not? All people of high places, all those who are leading, you could say, campaigns in our world. They could be your professors. They could be your, your, uh, your, your bosses. They could be anyone that to you is in a high place. Now, as you stop and reflect about this, you see the temptation is to quickly put this into the category of praying for civil magistrates, etc., in other words, a housekeeping prayer. You know, and to be sure, we're told elsewhere, as here, to pray for our magistrates, to pray for people in high places. But Paul has something else here in mind. And it's very clear as you're going to walk through. So I want you just to, as you engage this passage, I'm going to need you to kind of just suspend your immediate reaction to some of the words you've already heard said. You would quickly import into them, perhaps, if you're familiar with the tradition, things that are, well, let me just say a little more housekeeping. But I think you're about to see something that's quite bold. It's, it's going to challenge us. For see, what he's going to go here is he's not talking about these folks insofar as their campaign is concerned, though we should pray for those things. It's true, we should pray for our president. We should pray for our governor. We should pray for our board of aldermen, etc., etc., etc. And we should pray that God would bless them and give them common wisdom and grace that they might rule well and, and that they might restrain evil and bring peace into this land. These are things we can pray for. We're told to pray for that. But I don't think that's exactly what Paul's at here. See, this is all within this context of the shadow of this charge. I charge you, Paul, to fight the good fight. First of all, therefore, related to the fight that is the fight of all fights, the battle of all battles, the campaign of all campaigns, first of all, then, understand your prayers. Yes, you're going to pray for those who are the leaders of great campaigns. But then it he gets this little clause that explains exactly what the object of your prayer is. Notice what he said. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, who? Our Savior. There's a huge transition right there. Our Savior. God, our Savior. Immediately, just pretend you've never heard this passage, this concept, or anything before in your life. Who is God? Here Paul wants to make sure we understand he is our Savior. And so we're praying here in the sight of God our Savior. And what is it that's that's the object of this prayer? What is it that's the campaign of this God? Well, you've already been given the hint. The God described here as our Savior 
desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There it is, that singular the truth. There is an argument starting to build here that's going to make sense of why he now is going to break off into this amazing, powerful truisms, these three truisms. Truisms that are, that are the most basic and the most uh, germane that, that you could ever be taught as pertaining to the meaning of our life, the passion that should inform our life. In our prayers. And of course, he's going to talk about the idea that there is only but one God. And there is but only one mediator, mediator between God and man. And when he begins to talk like that, now you begin to put into context what's he saying here when he says, pray for those who are in high positions? What he's saying is that they are not even exempt. That these people that you revere, these people that quite frankly might humble you, might intimidate you, might make you get very timid around them. He's telling to Timothy and therefore to the whole Christian church that we are not to be timid around these people. That these people are not to woo us and wow us as if their campaigns are the greatest of all campaigns. There's a great temptation for these campaigns to be the first of all campaigns. They are near to us. They are tangible. They are geographical. They are outward, which therefore means that they're easier to to grasp and to put our heads around rather than inward and spiritual. Paul is really making an argument here. And he's been making it through the whole book of Timothy. But the argument, there is campaigns, and then there is a redemptive, historical, world-governing campaign of all campaigns. And it's a campaign that transcends even the great leaders of our day. It's a campaign that makes them now the object of a campaign, rather than the leader of a a campaign. We pray differently now because we're dealing with something much greater than all the campaigns of our lives. You see, he desires all types of people. You see, why would you be tempted to translate it in a kind of individualistic or numerical way? We know that Paul will teach quite robustly that there are some that are not destined to eternal life. That there are some who are not, if you will, in this idea that he's talking about of being saved. So what is he talking about? He's here talking about the classic Pauline, there is no distinction, neither, you know, and he goes through it, neither male, nor female, in other places, Greek or, or Jew. You know, you could say, High authority people, those who are the followers of those people. In other words, there is, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the great leveler. We are all the same. There is no distinction, therefore, in Jesus Christ, Paul will say elsewhere in Romans. This is the point of what he's making. 
This is good and it's pleasing the sight of God, our Savior. Don't ever forget it. God, our Savior. Not a political system, not an economic system, not an academic degree, not, 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 not all those campaigns that fill your life and mine. They are not our Savior. God is our Savior. And so he goes on, notice carefully, to describe that idea of God, our Savior. What is amazing then about this perspective is the way in which great and powerful people of this world are now demoted in this conversation to be no different than you and me. What does Paul mean then to save or to bring salvation? That's the big question now. You've got to take that question seriously. What is Paul talking about then? Is he thinking of a salvation wherein we are reconciled one to another? It might be, but you're going to find that's not it. It certainly has ramifications to that. Is he praying for the salvation of America? The transformation of our city, New Haven? Good things to think about. Good things to pray about. Good campaigns to be sure. Is that what he's talking about, though? When he says salvation, is he thinking of some economic uh, aha moment where there is no poverty in the world? It's a good thing to pray for, but not here. That's not the campaign. It's not the campaign to alleviate poverty, though that may be a distant consequence. It's not the campaign to transform America. It's not the campaign to to transform New Haven. It's not the campaign to to redistribute wealth in the world. Everything that I just said are things that, that are noble things to campaign for in your life. And depending on who you are, that may even be at the very heart and soul of what you do for a living. Just hear me out. They're good things. They are things that you could even argue are indirectly or informed by the campaign. But Paul is making it clear. When he talks about salvation here, at the heart, and you can see this in all of his writings, At the heart, now here it is, this is the boom. He's talking about reconciliation with God. He's talking about the campaign to reconcile the world to God. And that there is no other ultimate definition in all of the world of salvation except to be reconciled to God. Now, if you're thinking with me, You just got into a really serious conversation. Why would we need to be saved from God? Did you catch it, how quickly that comes? If salvation is to be reconciled to God, the problem, the ultimate problem, is God. God is our greatest problem. I know, I'm provoking, I'm pushing. I want you to think with me here. Pastor, I mean, are you just kind of going wacko here? I suspect that our Christianity has gone a little wacko, if we even judge it historically, much less biblically. 
Listen to some passages here. For if while we were enemies, what? Oh, come on. God doesn't see us as his enemies. I mean, what kind of a God would see humanity weak compared to him as we are as enemies? I mean, that sounds like a bully God to me. Doesn't that sound like a bully God to you? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more than that, we are reconciled. Shall we be saved? Clearly, Paul means by salvation that we are reconciled to God. Another passage, 2 Corinthians. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And he goes on to describe what that meant. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you. We beg you. We make this our ultimate campaign of all campaigns because it is the ultimate issue, the ultimate question. Are you reconciled with God? Really? Are you? Here the point is Paul is making is that it is a first campaign of all campaigns is this campaign related to getting right with God who desires all people, all types of people. It's relevant to everyone. That is the issue for everyone. All types of people, even those who are the leaders of the greatest of this world campaigns. But there is a campaign that is quite frankly not of this world that now will reinterpret every campaign. It's to reconcile the world to God. Now, this is going to make perfect sense. If you're following this passage carefully, if you're really sitting down looking at it now, you're going to say, oh, God, that's that's perfect. Look what he does. Next. Three biblical truisms that argue for salvation being our greatest campaign, and everything he's going to say is going to defend why that campaign is the campaign to be reconciled to God. Specifically now I'm in verse 3 and following. And notice three things real carefully. Number one, he says, why is this the great campaign? Why is this the first priority? Why am I charging you, Church of Jesus Christ, to not lose sight, not to get distracted, to be like that soldier that, that doesn't get engaged in civilian affairs, as he says in 2 Timothy? Same kind of imagery here, to fight the good fight. Why? Well, stop and think about it, Christian, and I really hope that you'll do this. This is a moment for you to meditate. Just stop and think about the meaning of life with me a little bit. Why? Well, it begins with there is one God only. 1 Corinthians says, indeed, even though there were many so-called gods in heaven on earth, or on earth, as in fact, there are many gods and many lords, he kind of says that with quotation marks, there are many passions, there are many campaigns again, 
that have as their object many things that could become your God. And yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Of course, monotheism is perhaps the ultimate core value of a Christian religion. That while there are often reported other gods, while it's true that people fill their lives with other gods, as we are tempted to do as well, the fact of the matter is, the true fact of cosmology, the true fact of existence is there is only one God. That's it. Now, the Jeremiah passage that we heard read earlier is so profound. I'm going to read it again, now that you're kind of primed for it. I'm going to read it slowly, because it's a sermon in itself. Listen to what it means. I want you to ask the questions I read it. What does it mean? What, what are the implications? So what that there's one God? Well, so what? There is none like you, O Lord. You great, and your name is great in power. One God, one great power. There's no one like his power. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For that is your due. You fear your professor? Yawn, yawn. In comparison, you fear your boss? Oh, wimpy. You fear those who govern us in civil places and their power? You fear the power of our military? You feel the power of our politics? You fear the power of our economics? You fear the power, the power, the power, the power? Oh, how boring is that campaign if Jeremiah is right? For among all the wise ones of the nations, see, he's clearly wanting to apply this to the civilian affairs kinds of gods. For all the wise ones of the nations and in all of their great kingdoms, there is no one like you, God, says Jeremiah. They are, in comparison, stupid and foolish. The instruments given by idols is no better than wood and stubble. It's a comparative, relatively speaking, analysis. Beaten silver, he turns from the power of the world in the political sphere to the power of the world in the economic sphere. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of an artisan. And the hands of a goldsmith. Their clothing is blue and purple. They are all the product of skilled workers. But, but, verse 10, did you hear it? But the Lord, but the Lord is the true God. The owner of everything. He is the living God, the everlasting king. And then here is something that we don't like to talk about. And he's angry. That shakens me in this context to say that. He's angry. 
At his wrath, the earth quakes. And the nations, they cannot endure his indignation. We got a problem, a big, big problem. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, they will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. For it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. I put on the meditation one of my favorite bands, kind of a, a modern you know, folk band genre in the Christian faith is All Sons and Daughters. And, and they have this wonderful album, I think something the poets, maybe you know it. Um, they do this wonderful little historical survey of the saints and they write songs in memory of them. It's really a wonderful devotion, and I'm so, it's not often that I'll submit myself to a band leader to, to be taught, but they, they really have some re- really wonderful musings, and it's worth listening. But, of course, one of those songs is, is the one I quote here, Rest in You, where they're reflecting on the teachings and writings of Augustine. And if you know Augustine, they, they weave his writings into this song. And it goes like this, and I want to say it again, really, it's this sense of, 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 of a mystery. It's a sense, if you listen to the songs especially, they, they, uh, they use music to, to create that mystery, that sense of awe. And, and, and throughout, there's this kind of a, well, I'll, I won't describe the music. You'll just have to go listen to it. Who is Lord? Good question. I wish we asked it more. But our Lord. Who is God? Only God? You are the highest. You are most good. Our hearts are restless. Man, are they not. Hungry for a cause. Hungry for a campaign. Hungry for purpose. Your heart is restless. Yearning, desiring for your life to mean something. Wanting to, to, to find yourself. We are restless, are we not? Augustine said these words, and it's so true. We, we have this cliche of a heart-shaped vacuum, and, or God-shaped vacuum in our hearts, and we are nervous and restless from our youth to fill it with meaning and purpose, with a campaign. And then he goes on to say, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Quoting Augustine, this is where my hope lies. This is where my soul sighs. Think about that. My hope, my sigh. (sighs) I found it. The campaign, the cause, the meaning of my life that now will transform, that will come the rudder, the anchor, the compass. You can use whatever metaphor you want. That's what we're looking for here. And I will always find my rest in you. You cannot change, yet you change everything. Oh, that is serious monotheistic theology right there. You know, when I became a Christian, quote-unquote, it was as I was a freshman in college, actually going, is like a week or two before I went off to college, and I found out later, and I say this in, certain, in retrospect, that my conversion that happened in a pub 
um, called the Brandy House, after being brought to a crusade by Andy, or, or his son is Andy, but his father was, uh, what's his name? Uh, yes, you know, Stanley, Charles. And, uh, and, uh, and there I'm sitting there drinking a beer and, you know, underage, but they didn't care back in those days. And, and, um, and I prayed to receive Christ. And it, was, I, it was a whole issue about all my life. It's been culminating to this point. I won't go to the story now, but prayed to receive Christ. And, and I went and got my good friend, Foley Beach, and we prayed a, a sinner's prayer together. And next week I got baptized and went off to school. And in retrospect... I don't even know if it was called salvation. It was probably at least a half salvation. It was a salvation to a cause. I, man, I pulled up my garter belts. I went to school, and I'm going after all these people I used to smoke pot with, all these people I used to drink with, all these people that I used to party with. I love those people. I enjoy those people. And, man, I'm going to still enjoy them. I'm going to show them a Christian can party better than anybody else. I would be the last to go home in our fraternity parties, dancing on the floor and the tables with them. I know you can't believe that. I've, I have, my wife had to coddle me to go dance now. But, but it was a cause. And in that cause, I began to pray for some people, and I started praying for my best friend. I started praying that God would enable me to make the football team. I was going out for Georgia's team at the time, and, and I'm, I'm going to be a great, great witness for him, of course. So that's what I'm praying for. I'm going to be a witness. And, and then I'm praying for my friend who happened to be Jewish. God, help me. I was struggling to understand the Jewish faith and help my friend to come to Christ if it's true. And I remember praying that prayer the night before he got hit with a tree and went into a coma for five months. And it wasn't long until after that that my whole world started to crumble. Being a pledge stunk, although we finally made it, and they're now good friends of mine. Uh, football team, well, it was real simple. You know, I was smaller, uglier, dumber than the guy I was going up against to be the linebacker, and so I figured I would never make it. Um, life just wasn't working out. And so I go to the little center that I used to pray at nights, and I went there to tell God off, tell him I'm through. I gave you a shot. You know, I did my job, went out there, started a little evangelist Bible study, didn't know a thing that I was doing when I did it, and uh, everything's gone wrong. I pray for my friend to get saved, and you bop him on the head. I mean, what's going on? He's, he's gotten better. I wouldn't be talking quite like this. I had no clue what Christianity was about, other than it was a campaign. I didn't understand. Yet, it was about being reconciled to God. I was the campaign of his, I was the object here, not the guy he, he needs. I needed him. I need to submit myself into his mercy. I need to understand he's Lord, like it says here, he's Lord. He has, he, has, he owes nothing to anyone, nothing. It was a major moment in my life when I went to that place that night and the whole thing changed. And I began to focus one God, one campaign, and it relates to my becoming a child of God. And there's where Paul moves. This one, a second time, one mediator between God and man. Again, related to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, who is at once both God and man. 
The sermon doesn't have time to really explicate that right now, but and that's not the point. There's other places in theology classes where we can do that. You've heard it in other sermons. But if you really believe that, that there's one God, and that this God justifiably is indignant towards humanity. Why? Because humanity arrogantly rose up and made other things greater campaigns than his. Men rejected their maker, the source of their life. And God's wrath is described as just simply giving us what we want. It's never what we love that kills us. It's never what we hate that kills us. It's what we love. We loved other things. We committed adultery. The scripture goes through with all sorts of metaphors to try to explain just the horrific sin that we call original sin. The original sin of rejecting God. Of entering into a worldview where he was our enemy, where he was our competitor, our will, our lordship against his will and his lordship. And that is deeply offensive to the reality of the cosmos. It's offensive to who we are made in the image of God, not God's. And it's deeply offensive to God himself. You see, we're going to have to reconcile this issue of needing a middle person. C.S. Lewis says it this way, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. If you believe that, then all the things that you campaign for can't give you happiness. Not ultimately. If you believe that. Only God can. Parent, think about this. And so therefore, Paul goes on to say, who gave himself as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? What is it? It's a, it's a redemption price. And the question is begged. Again, if you're thinking, well, who did he pay? There are many theories that have gone around. Does he pay Satan? Really? Do we see Satan with that kind of power? No. No, he pays off God. His ransom is to pay God. Now, what does he pay? Justice. He ransoms us to God, using himself as payment for the just curse against sin, for the indignation to be satisfied. There's a great word, propitiation, that describes the transaction wherein Christ satisfied God in his justice and his wrath, and his indignation. Now, before you judge God to be some kind of mean, cruel God, you've got to understand that, that, that this whole plan was concocted by the God who's angry. It's like the God who justifiably has anger has now concocted a plan within himself and the mystery of the Trinity to pay the ransom for us that we might be reconciled to God. And therefore, Paul's point, God desires all people to be saved. He's that kind of a love that did not take it to the point of losing his love for you and me. See, wrath is the strength to attack repugnation. 
A lack of the passion of anger is also a vice when it comes to God. Because a man who truly and forcefully rejects evil will be angry at it. It is an evil, wrong thing to reject the goodness, the life, the beauty, the truth of God. We don't like to think of it like that. It's a moral issue to reject God. It's not just an intellectual one. It's not just a weak thing to do. It's an evil thing to do. And we have to understand that angry, anger, as we hear it here about God, has a very important role to play in virtuosity, in, in, the, in the virtuousness of God. For a virtuous God hates anything that's evil that would destroy life and dignity and well-being. Our problem is that we can't imagine that we could be evil in our humanistic world. John Christendom said it this way, and this is my last point. He who is not angry, whereas he has cause to be sins, for unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. It fosters negligence and incites not only the wicked, but the good to do wrong. He's ruminating about anger and the way in which anger can be a virtue. Today, it seems like we've located that virtuous anger in all kinds of other campaigns. Do you not hear that around us? You hear it everywhere. Anger's in right now. And yet the irony here, and this is something to make you think, is that it's a kind of self-righteousness that those of us, starting with me here, who have committed the greatest of all sins... An injustice. An injustice against the very truth of the cosmos. And rejected God. That I would now make it my campaign to be angry at all the injustices of the world. We have a God. And so I want to ask you, honestly, what is your campaign of all campaigns? Ask yourself. As this is a charge given to a pastor in the first century, what kind of pastor should you have and make? You know, you have more power to make pastors, to be a kingmaker, to be a pastor maker, as you say. Congregations in a democracy make pastor. That's what you do. What kind of a pastor would you make? The power of your feet, the power of your encouragement, the power of your excitement. Is it a pastor? whose first and foremost ambition and campaign is to reconcile people to God, whether they're red or blue, whether they're white or black, whether they are communist, whether they are socialist, whether they are Taliban, whether they are... You just go right through the system. Would you want a pastor that way, which seems like pretty close to what Paul's talking about here, or do you want a pastor who's willing to sacrifice that campaign for the other campaigns that all of those categories I just said represent, good as they may be? That's a question for you, Church of Jesus Christ. Second question for you is your own campaign. While you endeavor many things, um, what is your ultimate campaign? How would you know? Well, ask yourself the question. First of all, listen to your prayers. Is every 
circumstance an end in itself when you pray? Or have you begun to see the import of that circumstance relative to the great campaign or circumstance that's in, with, and behind it, which is to be reconciled to God? When you pray, thy will be done, we know God's will now. Would we pray as we pray for the health, as we pray for the safety, as we pray for Billy Bob to get into blank place and, and this to get this job and to do, 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 all the things we pray for? Could we possibly submit all of those prayers and our expectations and subservience to the prayer, God save blind, wherever salvation is needed in his or her life? However, your will be done. And how would you know your passions? Well, if you're a parent, and I really think this is important to say, we can dutifully recite the creed that our passion is to see people saved. We can dutifully recite the creed that we want them to be saved. I mean, what is the campaign that is uncompromising in your life? Where is those compromises when they come up and you say, well, this one has to do with reconciliation to God, but, but it'll happen next week. Let's do this. Your kids are getting the message of what your real passion is, what you get most excited about, what you are most passionate about, what you pray most significantly about, where you get most angry... <laughs> I mean, they get it. And what would the world see, colleague, friend, roommate, is your passion? I hope and pray that you will think about this as we consider this perspective, the campaign of all campaigns. Amen.